Hello, and welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Poesy. Today we're reading chapters six, 5, 6, and 7 of Concerning the Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR by none other than the Man of Steel himself, Joseph Stalin. Thinking now, I've never said where I'm reading this from, uh, so for your information, I'm reading this from the Marxist.org website, which has this um, work up there. and. Full disclosure, there is so, just so many typos on this document. Like in chapter 7, it says it correct Y reflects E requirements, when it's supposed to say it correctly reflects the requirements. So there's a lot of typos in it if you go to read it, and I'm trying to correct the typos in my head on the fly. So if I'm taking breaks and it's really stant, slanted the way I'm, or I don't know the right word, if it's all halted the way I'm speaking, it's because I'm trying to correct typos on the fly. Um, so yeah, just so everyone knows where I'm reading this from, if you want to read it, or if you like to avoid it and read a better edition, go right ahead. But without further ado, let's read chapter 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 5. Disintegration of the Single World Market and Deepening of the Crisis of the World Capitalist System. The disintegration of the single, all-embracing world market must be regarded as the most important economic sequel of the Second World War and of its economic consequences. It has had the effect of deep, further deepening the general crisis of the world capitalist system. The Second World War was itself a product of this crisis. Each of the two capitalist coalitions, which locked horns in the war, calculated on defeating its adversary and gaining world supremacy. It was in this that they sought to a way out of the crisis. The United States of America hoped to put its most dangerous competitors, Germany and Japan, out of action, seizing foreign markets and the world's raw material resources, and establishing a world supremacy. But the war did not justify these hopes. It is true that Germany and Japan were put out of action as competitors of the three major capitalist countries, the USA, Great Britain, and France. But at the same time, China and other, Europe other European people's democracies broke away from the capitalist system and together with the Soviet Union formed a united and powerful socialist camp confronting the cap camp of capitalism. The economic consequence of the the existence of two opposite camps was that the single all-embracing world market disintegrated. So now we have two parallel world markets also confronting one another. It should be observed that in the USA, Great Britain, and France themselves contributed, without themselves desiring it, of course, to the formulation and consolidation of the new wor world parallel market. They imposed an economic blockade on the USSR, China, and, Europe, and the European people's democracies, which did not join the Marshall Plan system, thinking thereby to strangle them. The effect, however, was not to strangle, but to strengthen the new world market. But the fundamental thing, of course, is not the economic blockade, but the fact that since the war, these countries have joined together economically and established economic cooperation and mutual assistance. The experience of this cooperation shows that not a single capitalist country could have rendered such an effective and technically competent assistance to the people's democracies as the Soviet Union is rendering them. The point is not only that this assistance is cheapest possible and technically superb. The chief point is that at the bottom of this cooperation lies a sincere desire to help one another and to promote the economic progress of all. The result is a fast pace of industrial development in these countries. 
it may be confidently said that with the, this pace of industrial development, it will soon come to pass that these countries will not will not only be no need of imports from capitalist countries, but will themselves feel the necessity of finding an outside world market for their surplus products. But it follows from this that the fear of exploitation of the world's resources by major capitalist countries, USA, Britain, and France, will not expand, but contract, that their opportunities for sale in the world market will deteriorate, and their industries will be operating more and more below capacity. That, in fact, is what is meant by the deepening of the general crisis of the world capitalist system in connection with the disintegration of the world market. This is felt by the capitalists themselves, for it would be difficult for them not to feel such loss of markets as the USSR and China. They are trying to offset these difficulties with the Marshall Plan, the war in Korea, frantic rearmament, and industrial militarization. But that is very much like a drowning man clutching at a straw. The state of affairs has confronted econ the economists with two questions. A. Can it be affirmed that the thesis expanded by Stalin during the Second World War regarding the relative stability of markets in the period of general crisis of capitalism is still valid? And B. Can it be affirmed that the thesis expanded by Lenin in the spring of 1916, namely, in spite of the decay of capitalism, on the whole, capitalism is growing far more rapidly than before, is still valid? I think that it cannot. In view of the new con conditions to which the Second World War has given rise, both of these theses must be regarded as having lost their validity. End of chapter 5. Chapter 7. The Basic Economic Laws of Modern Capitalism and Socialism As you know, the question of the basic economic laws of capitalism and socialism arose several times in the course of the discussion. Various views were expressed on this score, even the most fantastic. True, the majority of the participants in the discussion reacted feebly to the matter, and no decision on the point was indicated. However, none of the participants denied that such laws exist. Is there a basic economic law of capitalism? Yes, there is. What is this law, and what are its characteristic features? The basic economic law of capitalism is a, such a law as determines not some particular aspect or particular process of the development of capitalist production, but all the principal aspects and all the principal processes of its development, one consequentially which determines the essence of capitalist production and essential nature. It's, is the law of value the basic economic law of capitalism? No, the law of value is primarily a law of commodity production. It existed before capitalism and likely, like commodity production, it will continue to exist after the overthrow of capitalism, as it does, for instance, in our country. Although that is true, with a restricted sphere of operation. Having a wide sphere of operation in capitalist conditions, the law of value, of course, plays a big part in the development of capitalist production. But not only does it not determine the essence of capitalist production and the principles of capitalist profit, it does not even pose these problems. Therefore, it cannot be the basic law, economic law of modern capitalism. For the same reasons, the law of competition and anarchy production, or law of uneven development of capitalism in the various countries, cannot be the basic economic law of capitalism either. It is said that the law of average rate of profit is the basic economic law of modern capitalism. That is not true. Modern capitalism, monopoly capitalism, cannot con content itself with the average profit, which moreover has a tendency to decline in the view of the increasing organic composition of capital. It is not the average profit, but the maximum profit that the modern cap monopoly capitalism demands, which it needs for more or less regular extended reproduction. Most appropriate to the e 
concept of basic economic law of capitalism is the law of surplus value, the law of the origin and growth of capitalist profit. It really does determine the basic features of capitalist production, but the law of surplus value is too general a law. It does not cover the problem of the highest rate of profit, and securing of which is a condition for the development of monopoly capitalism. In order to fill this hiatus, the law of surplus value must be made more concrete and developed further in adaptation to the conditions of monopoly capitalism, at the same time bearing in mind that monopoly capitalism demands not any sort of profit, but increasingly, precisely, the maximum profit. That will be the basic economic law of modern capitalism. The main feature and requirements of the basic economic law of modern capitalism might be formulated regularly, roughly this way. The securing of the maximum capitalist profit through the exploitation and ruin and impoverishment of the majority of the population of a given country, through the enslavement and systematic robbery of the peoples of other countries, especially backwards countries. And lastly, through world wars, militarization of the national economy, which are utilized for obtaining the highest profits. It is said that the average profit might nevertheless be regarded as quite sufficient for capitalist development under modern conditions, but that is not true. The average profit is the lowest point of profitableness, which, below which capitalist production becomes impossible. But it would be absurd to think that in seizing colonies, subjugating people, and engineering wars, the magnates of modern monopoly capitalism are striving to secure only the average profit. No, it is not the average profit, nor yet super profit, which as a rule, represents only a slight addition to the average profit, but precisely the maximum profit that is the motor of monopoly capitalism. It is precisely the necessity of securing maximum profits that drives monopoly capitalism to such risky undertakings as the enslavement of systematic plunder of colonies and other backward countries, the conversion of a number of independent countries into dependent, country, into dependent countries, the organization of new wars, which to the magnates of modern capitalism is the business best adapted to the extraction of the maximum profit. And lastly, attempts to win world economic supremacy. The importance of the basic economic law of capitalism consists, among other things, in the circumstance that since it determines all major phenomena in the development of capitalist mode of production, it booms and its booms and crises, its victories and defeats, its merits and demerits. The whole process of its contradictory development. It enables us to understand and explain them. Here's one of the many striking examples. We are all acquainted with the facts from the history and practice of capitalism, il illustrative of the rapid development of technology under capitalism. When the capitalists appeared as the standard bearer of the most advanced techniques as revolutionaries in the de development of the technique of production. But we are also familiar with the facts of a different kind illustrative of a whole of technological development under capitalism, when the capitalists appear as reactionaries in the development of new techniques and not infrequently resort to hand labor. How is this howling contradiction to be explained? It can only be explained by the basic economic law of modern capitalism, that is, by the necessity of obtaining the maximum profit. Capitalism is, the new, is in favor of new techniques, which they promise it the highest profit. Capitalism is against new techniques, and for resort to hand, to hand labor when the techniques, new techniques do not promise the highest profit. This is how matters stand with the basic economic law of modern capitalism. Is there a basic economic law of socialism? Yes, there is. What are the essential features and requirements of this law? The essential features and requirements of the basic law of socialism might be formulated in roughly this way. 
in the securing of the maximum satisfaction and the constant of the constantly rising material and cultural requirements of the whole society through the continuous expansion and perfect socialist production of the basis of higher techniques. Consequentially, instead of maximum profits, maximum satisfaction of the material and cultural requirements of society. Instead of developments of production, which breaks in continuity from booms to crisis, unbroken expansions of production, instead of periodic breaks in technical development, accompanied by destruction of the productive forces. An unbroken process of perfecting production on the basis of higher techniques. It is said that the law of balance and proportionate development of the national economy is the basic economic law of socialism. That is not true. Balanced development of the national economy, and hence economic planning, which is more or less faithful reflection of, of this law, can yield nothing by themselves. If it is not known for what purpose economic development is planned, or if that purpose is not clear, the law of balanced development of the national economy can yield the desired result only if there is purpose for the sake of, of which economic development is planned. The purpose of the law of balanced econ development of the national economy cannot itself provide. Still less can economic planning provide it. The purpose is inherent in the basic economic law of socialism in the shape of its requirements, as expounded above. Consequentially, the law of balanced development of the national economy can operate to its full scope only if the operation, only if its operation rests on the basic economic law of socialism. As to economic planning, it can achieve positive results only if two conditions are observed. A. It, corre it correctly ref reflects requirements of the law of balanced development of the national economy, and B. It conforms in every way to the requirements of the basic economic law of socialism. End of chapter 7. Chapter 6. Inevitability of Wars Between Capitalist Countries some comrades hold that, owing to the development of the new international conditions since the Second World War, wars between capitalist countries have ceased to be inevitable. They consider that the contradictions between the socialist camp and the capitalist camp are more acute than the contradictions among the capitalist countries, that the USA has brought the other capitalist countries sufficiently under its sway to be able to prevent them from going to war among themselves and weakening one another, that the foremost capitalist minds have been sufficiently taught by the two world wars and the severe damage they caused to the whole capitalist world not to venture into the capitalist countries in war with one another again, and that, because of all of this, wars between capitalist countries are no longer inevitable. These comrades are mistaken. They see the outward phenomena that come and go on the surface, but they do not see these prof those profound forces which, although they are far from operating imperceptibly, will nevertheless determine the course of developments. Outwardly, everything would seem to be going well. The USA has put Western Europe, Japan, and other capitalist countries on rations. Germany, Western, Britain, France, Italy, and Japan have fallen into the clutches of the USA and are meekly obe obeying its commands. But it would be mistaken to think that things can continue to go well for all eternity, that these countries will tolerate the domination and oppression of the United States endlessly, that they will not endeavor to tear loose from American bondage and take the path of independent development. Take, first of all, Britain and France. Undoubt undoubtedly, they are imperialist countries. Undoubtedly, 
cheap raw materials, and secure markets are of paramount importance to them. Can it be assumed that they will endlessly tolerate the present situation, in which, under the guise of the Marshall Plan aid, Americans are penetrating into the economies of Britain and France and trying to convert them into adjuncts of the economy, and American capital is seizing raw materials in British and French colonies, and thereby plotting disaster for the higher profits of the British and French capitalists? Would it not be truer to say that capitalist Britain and, after her, capitalist France will be compelled to break to end to will be compelled in the end to break from the embrace of the USA and enter into conflict with it in order to secure independent position and, of course, higher profits? Let us pass to the major vanquished countries, Germany, Western, and Japan. These countries are now languishing in misery under the jackboot of American imperialism. Their industry and agriculture, their trade, their foreign and home policies, and their whole life are fettered by the American occupation regime. Yet only yesterday, these countries were great imperialist powers and were shaking the foundation of the domination of Britain, the USA, and France in Europe and Asia. To think that these countries will not try to get on their feet again, will not try to smash the U.S. regime and force their way to independent development, is to believe in miracles. It is said that in, in the contradictions between capitalism and socialism are stronger than the contradictions between the among the capitalist countries. Theoretically, of course, that is true. It is not only true now, today, it was true before the Second World War, and it was more or less realized by the leaders of the capitalist countries. Yet the Second World War began not as a war with the USSR, but as a war between capitalist countries. Why? Firstly, because war with the USSR as a socialist land is more dangerous to capitalism than war between capitalist countries. For whereas war between capitalist countries put into question only the supremacy of a certain capitalist country over others, war with the USSR most certainly puts into question the existence of capitalism itself. Secondly, because the capitalists, although they clamor for propaganda purposes about the aggressiveness of the Soviet Union, they do not themselves believe in the aggressiveness because they are aware of the Soviet Union's peaceful policy and know that it will not attack capitalist countries. After the First World War, it was similarly believed that Germany had been definitely put out of action, just as certain comrades now believe that Japan and Germany have been definitely put out of action. Then too, it was said and clamored in the press that the United States and Europe had put the United States had put Europe on rations, that Germany would never rise to her feet again, and that there would be no more wars between capitalist countries. In spite of this, Germany rose to her feet again as a great power within the space of some 15 or 20 years after her defeat, having broken out of bondage and taken the path of independent development. And it is significant that it was none other than Britain and the United States to help Germany to recover economically and to enhance her economic war potential. Of course, when the United States and Britain assisted Germany's economic recovery, they did so with the view of setting a recovered Germany against the Soviet Union, utilizing her against the land of socialism. But Germany directed her forces in the in the first place against the Anglo-French American bloc. And when Hitler's Germany decided to War, declared war on the Soviet Union, the Anglo-French American bloc, far from joining with Hitler's Germany, was compelled to enter into coalition with the USSR against Hitler's Germany. Consequentially, the struggle of the capitalist countries for markets and their desire to crush their competitors proved in practice to be stronger than the contradictions between the capitalist camp and the socialist camp. What guarantee is there that Germany and Japan will not rise to their feet again, will not attempt to break out of American bondage, and live on their own independent lives? I think there is no such guarantee. But it follows from this that the inevitability of wars between capitalist countries remains in force. It is said that Lenin's thesis that imperialism inevitably generates wars must now be regarded as obsolete, since powerful popular forces have come forward today in defense of peace and against another world war. That is not true. 
The object of the present-day peace movement is to rouse the masses of the people to fight for the preservation of peace and the prevention of another world war. Consequentially, the aim of this movement is not to overthrow capitalism and establish socialism. It confines itself to the democratic aim of preserving peace. In this respect, the present-day peace movement differs from the movement of the time of the First World War for the conversion of the imperialist war into civil war, since the latter movement went farther and pursued socialist aims. It is possible that in a definite conjuncture of circumstances, the fight for peace will develop here or there into a fight for socialism. But then it will be no longer a present-day peace movement. It will be a movement for the overthrow of capitalism. What is most likely is that the present-day peace movement, as a movement for the preservation of peace, will, if it succeeds, result in preventing a particular war in its temporary postponement, in the temporary preservation of a particular peace, in the resignation of a bellicose government in its supersession by another that is prepared temporarily to keep the peace. That, of course, will be good, even very good, but all the same, it will not be enough to eliminate the inevitability of wars between capitalist countries generally. It will not be enough, because, for all the successes of the peace movement, imperialism will remain con to continue in force. And consequentially, and the inevitability of wars will also continue in force. To eliminate the inevitability of war is necessary to abolish imperialism. End of chapter six. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Book Club Commune. Next episode, we're probably going to finish this work with 8, 9, and 10. There are certain letters that are uh, included with this work, um, but I don't think I'm going to read them just for brevity's sake and just so I can finish the work and then move on back to Mao and get back chugging. This is supposed to be just a short intermission. Um, so we have context, so I don't think it's necessary to read the extra letters that are included with the Marxist.org version of this. So once we read chapter 10, we're going to be done, and I don't think we're going to be going into um, another Stalin work. I might if I feel like it and have the time. Time is the big issue with this in that I have limited time to record each day and limited opportunities to record uh, each day as well so it's really going to depend on timing and opportunity so like i say every episode thank you so much for listening please like and share this and send this to anyone you think needs to hear this work um i really appreciate it as far as i know i only have 13 to 14 um listeners who listen to each episode um because that's how far i can see on the on the data site I use. Um, so I have no clue if it's bigger than that. But if you listen and would like to share it, please do. I would really appreciate it. The whole goal is just to send these works as far as wide as they can. And like I say every time, solidarity forever and keep on reading. <laughs>